Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Amen. This letter or epistle to the Hebrews is written to the Hebrew Christians, that is the Jewish Christians, not so much the Gentiles, but the Jewish Christians. There may have been among the recipients a few Gentiles, but primarily it was written to the Hebrew Christians. And naturally, in the first century, when the apostles went from synagogue to synagogue and from city to city, they first preached to the Jews and converted some Jews in various parts of the world. And therefore, the predominant membership of the local churches would have been Jewish or Hebrew and not Gentilic or of the nations of the world. And that's the reason why it is addressed to the Hebrews. Now, the Hebrew Christians had the potential of resorting back to their old ways or backsliding to their old beliefs, to the theology that they had known, to the traditions and the commentaries and the rabbis that they used to hear and the interpretations that they used to hear. Because if they were to go back, it would have been going back to a distorted interpretation, a distorted meaning of the Old Testament. And that's why this letter is written. It's written in order to prevent that. And there are many warnings in this letter to prevent it. 
This letter is known for its warning passages. Chapters 2, 3, 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, and at the end of chapter 10 there's a couple of places, and also in chapter 12, the last part of chapter 12. These are the warnings presented in this letter. We notice also that the letter is anonymous. That is, the name of the apostle who wrote it is not here. And because of this, there has been much speculation. However, the predominant or the the better view, if we were to propose an author, it would be the Apostle Paul. Though the way in which he writes this is different from his other letters, it still has many similarities to the Apostle Paul's theology, to the Apostle Paul's diction and phraseology, and his way of writing in other places. And if we were to wonder, why is it so distinct? Well, if we were to read 2 Corinthians and not know it was written by the Apostle, 2 Corinthians does not read like Romans. It does not even read like 1 Corinthians. It does not read like Galatians and Ephesians. It's different because the content is different. The purpose is different. And that would be a way to explain why it is different here in the book of Hebrews. Though the author is really not the main issue because we believe it was canonized for a reason. It was canonized or put in the collection of books because it was considered to come from an authority and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when we consider the contents of this letter, it is very, very important. The contents of this letter and Romans and Galatians, if we understand the theology presented in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, we will have understood many of the important doctrines of the gospel. These books will help us understand. And now, when we study Hebrews for our series, the series Sin and Judgment, we ought to consider that the Apostle for 11 chapters, for actually for 12 chapters, for 12 chapters, the Apostle has been primarily exhorting and explaining. Primarily, he's been expositing theology. He's been explaining that we must have correct, accurate theology based on the Old Testament and based on the apostolic doctrine taught to the apostles by Christ himself. This is so important that he takes 12 out of 13 chapters to make sure our theology is correct. And then the 13th chapter, there is some theology there and some morality or some ethics on how we should live. This kind of approach is very foreign to our day. To emphasize correct theology, authoritative, accurate theology, so that any deviation from it equates to heresy, equates to false doctrine. And as the Apostle will show us, chapter after chapter, it's a matter of salvation. If we don't have the correct Christ and the correct ministry of Christ, his both, both his identity and his ministry, if we don't understand it correctly, we are in jeopardy of not having salvation. 
That's how serious it is. So when we study in our series, Sin and Judgment, we're going to notice many aspects of theology that we should understand correctly. And any deviation would be heresy and leading to condemnation. Also, we note, many, many commentators have noted this, that the apostles' goal is to exalt Christ, is to show the superiority of Christ above all that has preceded Him. The superiority of Christ. If we do not have in mind the correct understanding of Christ, then we are lost. We do not have salvation. And in reference to the Hebrew Christians, they were being taught to mitigate, qualify, and ease up on what the apostles were teaching who the Christ actually was, who the Messiah actually was. But this letter is written in order to warn those who have professed faith in Christ not to shrink back, not to resort to their old beliefs, but to understand that they must understand Christ correctly. And in his superiority, we'll we'll see in chapter 1 that in verses 1 and 2, Christ is superior to the fathers and the prophets. Then in verses 3 to 14, he is superior to the angels. In chapters 3 and 4, he is superior to Moses, Joshua, and David. In chapter 5, 5 to 10, he is superior to the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical code established by Moses. He is superior to that because he holds the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's chapters 5 to 10. Chapter 11 shows that the saints of the Old Testament, the Christians of the Old Testament, they looked forward to the coming of Christ as he explains it here in this letter. What Christ has accomplished, they anticipated many generations before Christ was incarnated. And from our perspective, we look back, they looked forward. And the many who remained faithful until the end are listed in chapter 11. And that's just a sampling. He does not mention every single Christian of the Old Testament. Then he proceeds to give us a warning and exhortation to persevere in chapter 12 and some theological and ethical exhortations by chapter 13 when he concludes the letter. Now let's return to chapter 1, verse 1. How is he superior to the fathers and the prophets? He is superior in this way. Verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He'll continue to to describe the glory of Christ in verses 3 and 4. But he is superior. Why? Because in the past... The fathers 
by means of the prophets, they received many portions and many ways of the revelation of God. It didn't all get revealed at the same time and in the same way. But now it has. In the incarnation, in one person, and in one full comprehensive form, he has explained and accomplished what is necessary for us to know for our salvation. That is the complete, full, final sense in which God in the last days has spoken in His Son. In that sense, He is superior to the prophets and the fathers. Not that the fathers and the prophets said anything erroneous, not that they had false doctrine mixed with true doctrine. He doesn't mean that. He's talking about the manner in which it was presented. It is a full, comprehensive, and final declaration, revelation in His Son. That's the comparison He's making. We need to say that because it would be a sin. It would be heresy to relegate the Old Testament to the trash can. And there are denominations that do so officially. In their statements of faith, they do relegate the Old Testament to not be valuable, important, or applicable to Christians. There is no authority in the Old Testament to some. But that cannot be our view. That's not what he's saying here. They cannot use these verses to say the Old Testament no longer applies to us. In that way, we could never identify ourselves as quote, unquote, New Testament Christians or New Testament church. Whenever a church calls itself a New Testament church or we call ourselves or they call themselves New Testament Christians, this is what they are implying. The Old Testament is inferior. The Old Testament is abrogated. The Old Testament does not need to be read or studied. It's no good. We just need the New Testament. The hypocrisy of that belief, actually, is that they don't even follow the New Testament in what it says about the Old Testament. They are actually not New Testament Christians, even though they claim to be. Further, in verse 2, we have another contrast. That is, the fathers and the prophets were men. They were redeemed men. They were converted men. They believed in the gospel, yet they were men. In the case of verse 2, verses 2 and 3 and 4, we have the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the Son of the Father. He existed in heaven, we'll see. He existed in heaven. He is superior to every creature. Though He was incarnated, before He was incarnated, He existed as God, invisible God, intangible God. God. Then he took upon human nature. He did not relinquish or minimize his deity. He still retained his deity, but he added humanity in his incarnation. This is the Son who is 
described here. And now from verses 2 and following, the superiority of the Son is not only in contrast to the ancient patriarchs and prophets, but also in contrast to the angels. In contrast to the angels. Why? Because we do know from Colossians 2, 16-23 that there were some Jews, some Christians, worshiping angels. And he, he says in Colossians 2 that we should not be worshiping angels. And that's why he's explaining from verses 2 to 14 that Christ, the Son of God, is superior to angels. No angels ought to be worshipped. If no angels ought to be worshipped, certainly no men ought to be worshipped. Only Christ. Who is the Son? Verse 2. He is appointed heir of all things. He is the heir of all things and then shares his inheritance with us. Romans 8, 17. He shares his inheritance with us, but he is the heir. We are not the heir. The fathers and the prophets are not. Angels are not. Only the Son is of all things. That's how superior and exalted he is. He also, in verse 2, made the world. Christ made the world. If Christ made the world, then he's not an angel. Because nowhere does the Old Testament or New Testament say that angels created the world or any part of the world. Angels did not. Contrary to popular culture in their songs and movies and books, they claim, assert, that angels created the world or some aspects of the world. Not true. Christ did. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They created the world. Genesis 1-2 mentions the Spirit of God. John 1-1-3 mentions the Son of God as the Creator. And right here also, through whom also He made the world, which means God the Father made the world through the Son. Not angels, He did. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of of God's glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. He's not lesser than the Father, but He represents in His incarnation the glory of the Father and His exact nature. Cults, heretics, false religions say Jesus Christ is a lesser deity, a lesser God, an angel, an archangel, or a man, a very holy man, but only a man. Maybe even a perfect man. How that's possible, that's, that's impossible. But they say maybe even a perfect sinless man without deity. But this says he possesses deity, a divine nature. Not only that, he is the sustainer, upholder of all things by his powerful word. Who is sustaining the universe? 
Who is controlling the universe? Not angels, but Christ, the Son of God. Furthermore, verse 3 says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ, after he accomplished death on the cross as an atonement for our sins, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. The majesty on high is the Father, God the Father. He purified our sins, made purification of sins. He removed our guilt. He removed all of the stain of it, and he did it for us. We will see in chapter 2 that this has reference to the elect, the church, the believers, the family of God, the brothers of Christ, He did not make purification of sins for every person in the world. He will clarify that later. Because it's general here, it's unspecific, made purification of sins, some commentators say he made made purification of sins for every person. All sins of every person throughout history. No, that's not what he means. He will clarify in chapter 2 and elsewhere, but we'll see in chapter 2, verses 9 to 18, where he clarifies that. Then verse 4, he is now ascended into heaven. He has ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What is this more excellent name than the angels possess? The angels are given various names. They're called angels, verse 14. They are called ministering spirits. In verse 7, winds, flame of fire. They're called different names. But what is the son called? What is the more excellent name that he has? And that is explained in verses 5 to 6. What is it? He's called the son or my son. It's better to be called my son or the son of God than to be called an angel. That is the more excellent name. Because son means he has always been the son of the father. He is uncreated. In fact, he is the eternal God who created the world, including all the angels. That's the more excellent name. Verse 5. Now, a couple of rhetorical questions. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Can it be proven, can the Jews or the Hebrews ever prove that God in Psalm 2 verse 7, that is the Father speaking to the Son, but composed, written by 
David in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7, when the Father speaks to the Son, the Father says to the Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Did God the Father ever say that to any angel? And the Jews, the Hebrews, would have to say, No, we have no evidence of that. In fact, according to their accurate commentators on Psalm 2, verse 7, the accurate commentators say he's speaking of King Messiah, King Christ, Christ the King. They say that that is a prophecy of God speaking to his son, the Christ. Verse 5 continues, And again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Which is Second Samuel 7.14. 2 Samuel 7.14. That is a prophecy that God revealed to David that David would have a throne that lasts forever. That is, his dynasty would last forever. And how so? Because the son of David, who is here called the son of God, the son of the father, that he would be a descendant of David. Based on 2 Samuel 7, that's why in the New Testament, Christ is called the Son of David. He's not only the Son of David according to his humanity, as it also says in 2 Timothy 2, 8-12, a descendant of David. He is a descendant of David, but also God the Father who is the speaker in 2 Samuel, he is saying that the son of David, the perfect prophesied son of David, he is my son. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Further, we see in verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Who is the firstborn? The firstborn is Christ. Why is Christ called the firstborn? Contrary to heretics who say he's called firstborn because he was the first one born. Literally, such as Mormons say he was the firstborn spirit son spirit, child of God in heaven, the Father, who has a body of flesh and bones, and one of his innumerable goddess wives, he procreated with one of them, and the firstborn spirit from the physical union, a spirit is born, they say, in heaven, and that is the reason he's called the firstborn. According to Jehovah's Witnesses, he's called firstborn because God the Father first created Christ and then Christ created everything else. But that's not the reason he's called firstborn in Scripture. He's called firstborn in Scripture because of verse 4 and because of verse 2. Verses 2 and 4 says that he is the heir. He is the heir and he has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. 
Colossians 1, 15 and 16, likewise, he's the creator of all things, so he's called firstborn. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Because the creator is the owner, is the possessor for all eternity of everything he created. That's why he's called firstborn. Why? Because the firstborn had a double portion of blessing in the Old Testament. The firstborn had that. And because that was a privilege of the firstborn to inherit, that's why he is called firstborn. Not because in any literal sense he is the firstborn, but because he is the heir of all things. We also note he cannot be one of the angels or the first angel, the archangel, the supreme archangel. He could not be an angel in verse 6 because it says all the angels are supposed to worship him. The Greek and English do not say all the other angels, all the rest of the angels worship him. It says all the angels of God worship him. All the angels, not all the rest. Therefore, he's not one of the angels. If he were one of the angels, let's just even say he was the first created angel. Then why are the angels worshiping him and not God? That's also a problem that the heretics cannot resolve. Further, they, in verse 6, say the word worship does not mean worship. But it just means something like to bow in respect, to do obeisance, bow in respect. But the Greek word means worship. And there are other places in the New Testament where the same word is used of the worship of God and the worship of Christ. Worship means worship. And it's obvious in verse 6 that he's talking about worship. Also, if you were to compare verse 6 to Deuteronomy 32.43, Deuteronomy 32.43, you may not have it in your English Bible, this quote, but it is Deuteronomy 32.43, and this verse is in the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Old Greek, LXX, according to Roman numerals, LXX, and it's also called Septuagint. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, this verse is present. It's also present in the one of the manuscripts in the Qumran fragments of Deuteronomy 32. In the Qumranic fragments found in the 1940s, it's there too, in a Hebrew text of Deuteronomy. It happens not to be in the manuscript, particular manuscript used for our Old Testament, but it is there in ancient manuscripts, both in Hebrew and Greek. Verse 7. In contrast, what are the angels? He's going to contrast angels in verse 7 and then also in verse 14, or 13 and 14. Verse 7 God speaks of angels, and what does he call them? He calls his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's what he calls them, 
But he never calls them my son or the son of God. The unique, only begotten, eternal son of God. They're never called that. Verse 8, the contrast continues in that after saying angels are called winds and flame of fire, now the speaker is still God the Father. Notice that. The speaker in verses 8 to 12 is God the Father. And God the Father will say these things of His Son. If God the Father says these things of His Son, no professing Christian should say anything less. Because if we say anything less, we are demoting the deity of the Son. And if we demote the deity of the Son, we are worshiping another God. We are worshiping an idol. And we're taking God's name and Christ's name in vain. And when we gather together to worship Him on the Lord's Day, and we pray to Him and sing to Him, we are defaming and profaning the Lord's Day because we are worshiping a false god on the Lord's Day. What does the Father say? Notice in verse 8, he, the Father calls the Son God. If the Father calls the Son God, we should call the Son God. The Son of God, God. Verse 10, the Father continues his speech, and in verse 10 he says, Lord. He calls him Lord. That's why Christ can be called according to Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's why also he's known as the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God the Father has called him those names. Therefore we should. And what is it that he says of him in verse 8? That his throne is forever and ever. Angels don't have eternal thrones, but Christ does as God. And Christ has a righteous scepter. Christ has a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. Christ is the one who loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Christ is the one who is anointed by the Holy Spirit above the companions of Christ. Who are the companions? The friends. We are. We have the Holy Spirit, but the Son of God immeasurably has the Holy Spirit immeasurably compared to us. Verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they all will become old as a garment and as a mantle, you will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. The Father now says what the Apostle said in verse 2. That is, through whom also He made the world. Now in verses 10 to 12, God the Father says that Christ created the heavens and the earth. God the Father says the heavens and the earth will pass away, but He will not pass away. The Son will not pass away. He will remain the same. That is, he was 
in existence before the world was created, he's eternal. In the past, he existed as God during his incarnation, and he still exists as God. And when the new heavens and the new earth are made, he will continue to exist as God, Lord, forever and ever. His years will never come to an end. Though he was incarnated, he is eternal in reference to his deity. Verse 13, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is quoted from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. And it's also quoted by Christ in Matthew 22, 44. Matthew 22:44, And Christ applies it to himself. Christ applies it to himself. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Jews, some of the Jews, understood that Psalm 110 was God talking to His Son, the Christ, the Messiah. Some of the Jews understood that. That's why he's quoting it, because the Jews receiving this could easily consult their rabbis, could easily consult their commentaries on Psalm 110 at the time. The written commentaries... And know that the apostle is not making it up. That authoritative, accurate rabbis among their own people said, yes, that psalm has reference to Christ. So the father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the father explaining what the apostle said in verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was never declared of any angel. It was never. That's why he says, to which of the angels has he ever said? No, never. But to the Son of God, yes. Then a final contrast, verse 4. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Yes, that's what they are. They are ministering spirits, serving spirits. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit send out angels to render service to us, to help us for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That is us. The spirits are sent for our benefit to promote and encourage our salvation. That's what they are. That's who they are. The spirits were not incarnated like the Son. They never had any of these declarations like the Son. From the Father to the Son. They were never called the Son. They were never incarnated and put on the cross to pay for our sins. They were never raised from the dead. They were never exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father by the ascension. 
None of those miracles or accomplishments were accomplished by angels. They serve us in our day-to-day life in ways that the Son does not because He is at the right hand of the Father. We've learned in this chapter to properly identify the identity of Christ and the ministry of Christ. He's saying this as a very important matter. He will then, in chapter 2, 1 to 4, present a warning to us that we not deviate from what we have heard and learned. Because if we deviate from it, he says that in verse Verses 1 and 2, or 1 to 3. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. See how he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He just explained the great salvation in verses 1 to 14 in the first chapter. If there's any neglect, any rejection, any deviation from it, then there's no salvation. We can't call Christ an angel and be saved. We cannot say he did not die on the cross as a substitute for our sins and be saved. We cannot say he never rose from the dead and still be saved. We cannot say he never ascended into heaven and still be saved. We cannot say he's not the creator of the world. We cannot say he's not the eternal God and be saved. We cannot make any of those denials and still be saved. We will be judged. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.